Chapter Ten of the Straighten Street Affair by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter the Tenth. Monsieur Suzo again. Mrs. Cullerton's words held me breathless. At first I believed that I might wring the truth from her lips, but I quickly saw that she intended to preserve her secret at all costs. Whether she actually believed what I had told her concerning her own peril was doubtful. In any case, she seemed in some strange manner held powerless and fascinated by the rich man who had saved her speculating husband from ruin. I remained there for still another quarter of an hour until her maid announced a visitor when I was compelled to rise and take my leave. For a few days longer I remained in Florence. Then I left for London. On entering the Calais Express at the Gare du Nord in Paris on my way home, I was agreeably surprised to find among my fellow travellers to England the affable French banker whom I had met on that memorable journey from York to London. He recognized me at once, and I inquired why he was not, as usual, crossing by air to Croydon. Ah, he laughed, the last time I crossed three weeks ago we went into a thick fog over the channel, and it was not very comfortable so I prefer the rail just now. On this occasion we exchanged cards. His name was Gaston Souzon, and between Paris and Calais we discussed many things, for he was a well-informed man and a true hater of abortions. On the steamer we strolled upon the deck together, and we passed quite a pleasant journey in company. He was surprised that I had been in Italy, but I explained that I had been granted long leave of absence by my firm and that I had gone to Florence upon private matters. We parted at Charing Cross, Monsieur Suzot, to go to the Carlton, and I home to our little flat in Rivermead Mansions. A note lay upon the dining-room table. Hamilton was away in Cardiff, and he had left word in case I should return unexpectedly. The place was cold and fireless, and I was glad to go over to the Clarendon to have my dinner. My one thought was of Gabrielle Tennyson, who lived with her mother in a maisonette at Earl's Court, so I took a taxi to Longbridge Road, and, after numerous inquiries at neighbouring shop in Earl's Court Road, I discovered in which house lived Mrs. Tennyson and her daughter. The hour was late, therefore I felt that it was useless to keep observation upon the place in the hope of the girl coming forth. I had no excuse to make a call. Besides, I might, if I acted indiscreetly, destroy all my chances of solving the strange enigma. Therefore, not until ten o'clock on the following morning did I take up my vigilant watch at the end of the road, at a spot from which I had full view of the house in question. My watch proved a long and weary one, for not until three o'clock in the afternoon was my patience rewarded. The front door suddenly opened, and down the steps came the slim figure of a girl, followed by a woman. As they approached me I saw that it was the girl I had seen with Moroni in Florence, while the woman was, from her dress, evidently an old servant. The girl of mystery was attired quite smartly in black, her appearance being very different from the shabby figure she presented in Florence. But her beautiful countenance was just as pathetic, with that strange set expression of ineffable sadness. She passed by me without glancing at me while the stout homely woman at her side held her arm linked in hers. They turned into Earl's Court Road and walked towards Kensington High Street, 
while I followed at a reasonable distance. I could not fail to notice the grace of carriage of the girl whose listless attitude was so mysterious, and whose exact whereabouts Oswald de Gex was concealing from his friend, Mrs. Cullerton. But the one point which puzzled me sorely was whether the girl walking in front of me, all unconscious of my presence, was the same that I had seen dead at Straton Street, and for whom I had given a false certificate to cover up what had evidently been a crime with malice aforethought. The pair now and then became lost in the crowd of foot-passengers in busy Kensington, but I followed them. Occasionally they paused to look into Barker's shop windows, but the interest was evidently on the part of the serving-woman, for Gabrielle Tennyson, or whatever her actual name, seemed to evince no heed of things about her. She walked like one in a dream, with her thoughts afar off, yet her face was the sweetest, most beautiful, and yet the saddest I had ever witnessed. Tragedy was written upon her pale countenance, and I noticed that one or two men and women in passing the pair turned to look back at them. In that face of flawless beauty a strange story was written, a mystery which I was strenuously seeking to solve. Presently they entered Kensington Gardens, strolling along the graveled walks beneath the bare leafless trees that were so black with London's grime. The day was cold but bright, hence quite a number of persons were walking there, together with the usual crowd of nursemaids with the children of the well-to-do from the Hyde Park and Kensington districts. The pair passed leisurely halfway up the broad walk when they presently rested upon a seat nearly opposite the great façade of Kensington Palace. I saw that I had not been noticed either by the old servant or by her mysterious young mistress, therefore I sank quickly upon a seat some distance away, but in such a position that I could still see them as they talked together. Was Gabrielle Engledew living, or was she dead? Or was Gabrielle Tennyson and Gabrielle Engledew one and the same person? A living face is different from that of the same person when dead, hence the great problem presenting itself. It seemed as though in conversation the girl became animated, for she gesticulated slightly as though in angry protest at some remark of her companion, and then suddenly I had a great surprise. Coming down the broad walk, I saw a figure in a grey overcoat and soft brown hat, which I instantly recognized. He walked straight to where the pair were seated, lifted his hat, and then seated himself beside the girl. The man was my French friend, Suzeau. That they had gone there on purpose to meet him was now quite clear, for after a few moments the old woman laughed, rose and walked on, in order to leave the girl alone with the Frenchman. What could be the meaning of that clandestine meeting? For clandestine it was, or Monsieur Suzeau would have called at Longridge Road. Possibly they expected that they might be watched. Hence they had met as though by accident at the spot where they believed they would not be observed. Gaston Suzeau was a shrewd, clever man. But what did this friendship with Gabriel Tennyson denote? As I watched I saw him speaking very earnestly. For some time she sat with her gloved hands idly in her lap, listening to his words without comment. Then she shook her head and put up her hands in protest. Afterwards, by her attitude, she seemed to be appealing to him while he remained obdurate and unperturbed. I longed to overhear their conversation, 
but in the fading light of that brief wintry afternoon it was impossible to approach closer. I could only sit and watch. My eyes were strained to see every gesture of the pair, now that the stout figure of the girl's companion had disappeared towards the Bayswater Road. In that oasis in the desert of aristocratic London one can obtain quite sylvan surroundings. True, the trees and vegetation are covered with a film of grime from the millions of smoking chimneys of the great metropolis. Still, Kensington Gardens ever possesses a charm all its own as a clandestine meeting-place for well-born lovers and ill-born loafers, for nursemaids and soldiers, and for persons of both sexes who wish for a little quiet talk in the open air in order so often to clear a hectic atmosphere. Such I judge to be the case between Gaston Suzeau and Gabrielle Tennyson. At first the girl sat inert with downcast eyes listening to the man, but suddenly she raised her hands in quick protest again and apparently became resentful, even angry. Then when he spoke some reassuring words she became calmer. As I sat there shrewdly watching I could not help reflecting upon a still further problem which now presented itself. The very last person in the world whom I should have suspected of being connected with the strange affair at Straton Street was my affable friend, the French banker. I now began to wonder if my first meeting with him in the express train between York and King's Cross just before my amazing adventure had been simply by chance, or had it any connection between that meeting and the trap which had, without a doubt, been so cunningly prepared for me as I passed through Straton Street to my uncle's house on the following evening. The fact that I had again met the mysterious Suzeau at the Guerre de Nour in Paris, just as I was on my way back to London to pursue further inquiries, was in itself suspicious. I confess that I sat utterly bewildered. One thing was plain, namely that he had no suspicion that I was keeping such close observation upon Gabrielle. I knew where she lived, and to me he had given his hotel address. At last, after quite twenty minutes of serious conversation, the stout flat-footed servant returned, and after a few pleasant words with her, Suzeau rose and, raising his hat, left them. Instantly it occurred to me that, as I knew the girl's abode, it would be more useful, perhaps, to watch the movements of my friend, the French banker. He took the path which skirted the lake, and then cut down the straightway which leads to Alexandra Gate, into Rotten Row, while I followed him far behind, though I kept him well in sight. He went swiftly at a swinging pace, for he had apparently grown cold while seated there in the north wind. The ground was hard and frosty, and the sky gray and lowering with every evidence that a snowstorm might be expected. He walked the whole length of Rotten Row, that leafy way which is so animated when social London disports itself in the season, and which on a black wintry afternoon, when the smart set are on the Riviera or in Egypt, is so dull and deserted. At Hyde Park Corner he turned along Piccadilly, until he hailed a passing cab, to the driver of which he gave deliberate instructions. I glanced around and very fortunately saw another disengaged taxi, which I entered, giving the man instructions to keep the other in view, with a promise of double fare. Instantly the man entered the spirit of the enterprise, and away we went towards the circus, and thence by way of Oxford Street to the Euston Road, where before a small private hotel 
quite close to the station Suzo descended, and, paying the man, entered. For three hours I waited outside, but he did not emerge. Then I went to the Carlton, and from the reception clerk ascertained that Monsieur Suzo was staying there, but he did not always sleep there. Sometimes he would be absent for two or three nights. He went away into the country, the smart young clerk believed. Hence I established the curious fact that Gaston Zuzo, when in London, had two places of abode, one in that best-known hotel, and the other in the obscurity of a frowsy house patronized by lower-class visitors to London. What could be the motive, I wondered? I returned to the Carlton at midnight and inquired for Monsieur Zuzo. The night clerk told me that he had not yet returned. So I went back to the cold cheerlessness of Rivermead Mansions and slept until the following morning. At each turn I seemed to be confronted by mystery which piled upon mystery. Ever before my eyes I saw that handsome girl lying cold and lifeless, and I had forged a certificate in the name of a well-known medical man upon which her body had been reduced to ashes. That I had acted as accomplice to some cunning and deliberate crime I could not disguise from myself. It was now up to me to make amends before God and man, to strive to solve the enigma, and to bring the guilty persons to justice. This was what I was endeavoring with all my soul to accomplish. Yet the point was whether Gabrielle Engledew was really dead, or whether she still existed in the person of Gabrielle Tennyson. That was the first fact for me to establish. Next morning I rose early and gazed across the cold misty Thames to the great factories and wharves upon the opposite bank. The outlook was indeed dull and dispiriting. I stood recalling how Moroni had walked with the beautiful girl in the streets of Florence, unwillingly it seemed, for he certainly feared lest his companion be recognized. I also recollected the strange conversation I had heard with my own ears and the curious attitude which little Mrs. Cullerton had adopted towards me, even though she had revealed to me the whereabouts of Gabrielle Tennyson. My breakfast was ready soon after eight o'clock, and afterwards I went to Earl's Court to watch the house in Longridge Road. By dint of careful inquiries in the neighborhood I was told that Mrs. Tennyson had gone away a few days before, to Paris, they believed. The young lady, Mrs. Tennyson, appears to be rather peculiar, I remarked casually to a woman at a baker's shop nearby after she had told me that she served them with bread. "'Yes, poor young lady,' replied the woman. "'She's never been the same since she was taken ill last November. They say she sustained some great shock which so upset her that her mind is now a little affected. Old Mrs. Alford, the servant there, tells me that the poor girl will go a whole day and never open her mouth. She's like one dumb.' "'How very curious,' I remarked. "'I wonder what kind of a shock it was that caused such a change in her. Was she quite all right before November?' "'Perfectly. She was a bright, clever girl, and used often to come in here to me for chocolate and cakes. She was full of life and merriment. It is really pathetic to see her as she is nowadays. She seems to be brooding over something, but what it is nobody can make out.' "'Very remarkable,' I said. I've noticed her about and have wondered at her attitude, like many others, I suppose. Yes, her mother has taken her to a number of mental specialists, I hear, but nobody seems to be able to do her any good. 
They say she's suffered from some shock, but they can't tell exactly what it is, because the young lady seems to have entirely lost her memory over a certain period. Is Mrs. Tennyson well off? I asked. No, the reverse, I should think, the baker's wife replied. I've heard that Mr. Tennyson was a very rich man, but when he died it was found that he was on the verge of bankruptcy, and the widow was left very poorly off. It is curious what intimate knowledge the little tradespeople glean about their neighborhoods, even in London. From the woman I gathered one or two facts of interest. I inquired if Mrs. Tennyson had many visitors, whereupon she replied in the negative and added, "'There used to be an Italian gentleman who called very often a few weeks ago. He often walked out with the young lady. Somebody said he was a doctor, but I don't know if he was.' I asked the woman to tell me what he was like, when she gave me an accurate description of the mysterious doctor of the Via Cavezzo. So Moroni had visited her there, in Long Ridge Road. I tried to ascertain if Gaston Suzot had been there also, but my informant had no knowledge of him. She had never seen him walking with Gabrielle Tennyson, as she had so often seen the Italian. I remained for nearly a half an hour chatting, retiring, of course, when she was compelled to serve customers, and then I left her and walked round to the house in Long Ridge Road, where I watched a little while, and then returned to the Carlton. End of chapter 10. Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.